Mr. Jackpots. Okay, everybody. Hello! And welcome back to Raptin Podcast, Episode 4. This is J.R. Parker. I'm here with T. Kyle King. How are you doing, Kyle? Uh, I'm doing well, and excuse me, this is a damn fine cup of coffee. And then I'd like to also say hello to my friend and colleague, Ken Walzak. How are you doing, Ken? Doing well, JR. So, Ken, did you hate episode four as much as you hated episode three? First of all, hate is a very strong word. I don't hate the episodes that have Ben Horn playing Civil War, either. I love all things Twin Peaks. Um, I, uh, I was a little bit let down uh, by episode four as well. I, I think I've adjusted my expectations appropriately. I think that you know we have this version of Twin Peaks, and it's a different Twin Peaks, and we're all in agreement about that. I am more curmudgeonly about the ways in which it does not strive to be accessible or um, uh, entertaining in the soap opera sort of way, like the first series does. But there's some really remarkable stuff in both episodes, of course. Um, I think I was led to believe episode four would have a little bit more of a balance with lightness and quirk uh, amongst all of the grim dark, and uh, I don't think that that's really the case. Uh, I do want to say, having just rewatched it while recording a podcast about it, that episode three is really a remarkable piece of television. Like, if you're not grading it on the curve of the original Twin Peaks or the things that we liked about the original Twin Peaks, there's an awful lot of cool stuff in that episode three that we just discussed. You know, starting off with that really, really long, impressive, artistic, painterly sequence uh, and ending with the congressman's dilemma. There's an awful lot of cool stuff in between. So it's it's quite a remarkable hour of TV, as is this one we're about to discuss. They just aren't old Twin Peaks. The, the interesting thing about it to me in hearing Ken's reaction to it is this all is attributable to stuff that Ken was absolutely right about beforehand. You know, he predicted that we were going to see the changes in David Lynch's aesthetic uh, borne out in a Twin Peaks that looked more like other things he'd done since Twin Peaks. And he pointed out, uh, again, very wisely, that we were seeing as much as a, a 60% increase in all of the David Lynch-directed uh, product that was out there in the world. And and I think that's the, the very quality that he describing here uh, is that we're seeing uh, we're seeing a more reflective more mature David Lynch and we're seeing one who frankly has all the time that he needs you know the the thing about uh, episode three and then episode four is he just takes whatever time he needs to do whatever it is that he's doing at that particular moment because he knows he's got as much time as he wants to to let this story play out. And it may be maddening from the audience standpoint of saying, will you please get us back to Twin Peaks? Can we get to the Double R Diner for crying out loud? But from his standpoint, he's just saying, you know what, this is a journey. You're along for the ride. Enjoy it. This is fun. I think that's all right. I think that's all very solid. And I certainly appreciate the the praise for uh, my foresight uh, going into this season. But I think the curmudgeon's mantra is something like, just because I'm right doesn't mean I'm happy. Well, that, that's the beauty of being a pessimist is you're always either proven right or pleasantly surprised. Exactly. Yeah, no, I think it, I, the irony may be, Ken, that you predicted this and are at the same time the most resistant to what you predicted. <laughs> I agree. That's exactly where we find ourselves. <clears throat> so the next thing that we are, we're, we're back in, in the casino uh, with this scene where the ca- casino management uh, has to confront Dougie or Dale about his ridiculous winnings that are going to put them out of business. 
And so he, he's eventually basically forced into the supervisor's office uh, where I believe our, our, our commentator missing this week, but hopefully back with us, Jeff Fowles has identified that the supervisor has a picture of Jack Parsons, noted occultist and jet propulsion laboratory scientist, uh, is on the wall of Supervisor Burns' office, which is a strange place for it to be. Uh, but uh, there's this confrontation. Dale has a sort of face-to-face, having no idea what he's doing, really, where he's given a bag with a bunch of cash and told, encouraged to come back anytime, you know, quite ominously, and notes that they're, you know, that they're watching a Mr. Jones. And I thought there was a very ballad of a thin man quality to the way that the supervisor referred to Dougie as Mr. Jones. Yeah, and I I saw that a little bit differently because we've got him leaning in close for this face-to-face conversation. And we we later see this when uh, Cooper is at Dougie's home looking at himself in the bathroom mirror. Both of those, to me, were reminiscent of the closing shot of the season two finale of obviously uh, evil Cooper seeing Bob's reflection in the bathroom at room 315 of the Great Northern. Ken, do you have any any negative things to say about this scene? (laughs) Sure. Thank you for asking. I I call bullshit on the idea that this casino is going to let him walk away with all of their money. Uh, I believe you that a casino might be um, craven enough to take advantage of the mentally ill or even a recent stroke victim and let them play the the jackpots. But uh, if somebody who is either some sort of savant or just extremely lucky hits 29 mega jackpots, I think they would also take advantage of his incapacity to deny him the money in some way. They would say, you have found some way to break these machines. Um, and we're going to find out what it is, and we're going to hold this money um, until then. There's, there are casinos out there that are suing actual poker champions um, to have their money back because they figured out some edge. Uh, there was a poker champion who figured out an edge to Baccarat. If you play at a high enough level, they would let you choose how they shuffle the decks, and there's a way to shuffle the decks where he could see like the edge of a specific card, um, and that gave him enough of an edge to win millions and millions of dollars at Baccarat, and uh, because he figured that out, they're suing him to get the money back. I, I really doubt they'd let him walk away with a sack full of cash, but, you know, again, you understand the silverware? And we also don't know how much money's in the bag. Is that all 29 mega jackpots? I don't think so. I think it was a compromise. But we don't know that, and they certainly don't treat him as mentally incompetent from what we can tell in the office, but they may just assume that that's his game. And from there, Coop gets a ride home in a limo uh, to his home. He did briefly run into Bill Shaker of Allied Chemicals eating a hot dog with his wife, Candy, who recognized Dale as Googie, as Dougie, and they have kind of an awkward conversation. Uh, but in that conversation, Dougie found out that he lives on Lancelot, Lancelot Court at a house with a red door, and apparently a place where Bill Shaker of Allied Chemicals has visited before. With that information, he's driven home in a limo that eventually does find a house with a red door. And, uh, you know, it's funny, one the way that Coop is talking, where he kind of just repeats back phrases that people hear that that people say to him you know whether it's call for help or mr jackpot Uh, it reminded me of the way that leo would say shoes uh after he was shot in the original series um i don't know if you guys got the same impression but i there it seems like there it seems similar to me yes definitely kyle you i think you have some very specific thoughts about this uh arrival at his home but man no naomi watts's character her name is janie E, that's Janie, J-N-E-Y, hyphen E, Jones. What the hell kind of name is that? Well, you can't spell one-eyed jacks without Janie E, even including the hyphen, by the way. 
<laughs> but anyway, aside from that, no, the, the, the thought that I had, and actually let me piggyback onto what, uh, what you were talking about before with the casino taking advantage of him. You know, they sent him home with a bag of money. They also insisted that he not take a cab and that he take one of their limos so that now they have his address and they now know where he lives. So, you know, if they need to go sue him or rough him up, they uh, they at least know where to find him. So I, I don't know that they weren't, you know, planning for the future here. But uh, the, the thing that I noticed about this particular scene, and it goes back to episode three as as uh, Cooper is leaving the, the development, the subdivision with Jade, he passes a street sign reading Sycamore. And of course, the trees in Glass- Glastonbury Grove are sycamore trees. You know, we heard the, the song about under the sycamore trees in the original series. And obviously, Glastonbury Grove, although they spell it differently in Twin Peaks because of the berries that go into all those wonderful pies, uh, it is named for the supposed final resting place of King Arthur and Queen Guinevere. Uh, And here we have Cooper being driven to a house on Lancelot Court. He enters through a red door rather than red curtains. There's an owl ominously flying overhead, which spooks the driver, but doesn't spook Cooper. Uh, Janie E. later offers him cake instead of pie. Uh, We later see there's an owl cookie jar in their kitchen. I mean, we're, we're effectively circling around the entrance to the Black Lodge here. We're seeing a lot of things that are sort of the back door to, to the Black Lodge. Uh, and then later on, we've got him in his blue pajamas, not at all unlike the ones we saw him wearing at the end of the season two finale. And he's getting messages from the lodge through chairs next to light sockets when he's emerged from a light socket. And it just the whole feel that I get from this is we're not at the Black Lodge. We're, we're on the outside, but we're we're kind of at one of those ancillary entrance points um not not a main entrance like Glastonbury Grove but we're we're kind of at the uh, at the servants entrance to the Black Lodge if you will I have something on this Arthurian legend point that Kyle just made too uh the extremely reliable website www.timelessmyths.com tells me that from the uh damsel who served the lady in the lake sorry the lady of the lake Lancelot received three white shields one shield had one diagonal red band, the second had two red bands, and the third had three. The shield with one band would double Lancelot's strength, the shield with two red bands would triple his strength, and the third would give him the strength of four men. So is this the same shield pattern that we're seeing, the same chevron red and white alternating pattern that we're seeing whenever he spots uh, a machine that's about to pay off big? I mean, I'm, there's some resonance there for me. Uh, if, uh, sure. if this is the real myth, if timelessmyths.com can be trusted, uh, there's also uh, the doubling and, and tripling uh, idea there as well, which I think is cool. Okay, so once Coop or Dougie, whoever it is, uh, is reunited with his wife, Janie E., who has been initially very upset uh, because Dougie has apparently been out for several days and missed Sonny Jim's birthday. She is a lot happier when she discovers that he has all this money in that bag, uh, which will apparently uh, will provide her enough winnings to pay them off. You know what, who they are or what's owed or why is never explained. 
Well, and, and what we know about him is, of course, he's he's uh, there's somebody trying to kill him. Somebody had tried to shoot him earlier in the day, and and obviously we know there are bad men in Vegas who are uh, hiring uh, the people there in the Silver Mustang Casino to do some things that maybe they shouldn't be doing. Uh, and in addition to this, we've got you know billionaires conducting glass box experiments and people paying uh, Daria and Ray five hundred thousand dollars to kill Evil Cooper. So there sure seem to be a lot of people throwing a lot. Of money around. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and now we're back in Philadelphia or maybe DC because it's the FBI chief of staff's office, and that person is Denise. Uh, Gordon Cole is now, used to be her supervisor, and now he works for her. And there's kind of a weird colloquy at the beginning between Gordon and this guy, Bill. And then essentially this conversation, or Gordon has been summoned to Denise because Denise is concerned about Gordon's tendency to have attractive young women and to take them off on cases. And Gordon kind of responds that, you know, that he's old school. And the exchange kind of sounds like David Lynch answering his critics about how he's treated women in his films and in the show. It's sort of half and half for me. I'm I'm half perplexed and half infuriated, I think. And uh, the perplexity comes from the fact that I'm not really sure what the exchange is supposed to tell us about either Denise or Gordon. And the part where I feel like I understand it makes me furious because it seems like Lynch is both, yeah, answering his critics and giving himself a free pass for all of the misogyny that we've seen so far in the series. And we're going to see it later um, with... With uh, Tamara, um, who uh, is uh, Agent Tamara Preston, who is treated very much like a sex object, who seems in her very first appearance in the last episode that we discussed to be talking in like a sex kitten, seductress sort of voice at her job, um, and is then outright ogled by both the FBI agents she works with and the camera at the end of a scene later in this episode. So uh, it's hard not to think of all those things when she's being discussed by uh, Denise Bryson and by Lynch, and it just seems like the, the function of this scene, to the extent it has one that I can understand, is to give Lynch a pass for the way he's going to treat this character specifically and women in general. Yeah, and, and I, I definitely think the read on it is correct that uh... Uh, he is speaking to the audience as himself uh, rather than to the character that he's addressing as Gordon Cole. I think that's largely true throughout this episode, both the comments that he makes to uh, uh, to Denise in this scene and then later when he's saying to Albert, uh, you know, I don't know what's happening or I don't understand what's going on here. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of this is him communicating something to the audience. And I, I tend to agree with Ken there that um, if this is something he wants to address with us, Great, uh, but this isn't the way he needs to address it by simply saying, "Hey, look, I've done a lot of great things," and and maybe the character of Gordon Cole has, uh, but he can't really say that as David Lynch uh, and say that I've done these great things in the past. So uh, you just need to to let me go on this one. I, I'd rather, uh, like Ken, I would rather him just not address it at all and just make the the TV show he's going to make uh, than try and say, "Yeah, I'm aware of it, uh, but I don't care." 
Well, I should say that addressing it this way is worse than not addressing it at all. I suppose I agree with that. But the ideal thing would be for him to get some people who are actually women to work on the show and express a, a female perspective um, or just do a better job writing female characters and treating female characters uh, in the plot and in the way that they are filmed and the agency that they're given. Uh, I, I keep thinking back to the original series and some of the episodes directed by Leslie Linka Gladder, who went on to have a really interesting career in television um, and has worked on a lot of very, very good series and directed several of my favorite episodes from season one of Twin Peaks and early season two. Uh, it just seems like having somebody like her on staff good for the way that women are presented. Uh, certainly, uh, it would be good if there were female writers and directors around, but I understand this is a, a vanity project, this is a passion project, this is pure heroine David Lynch, uh, but that means we're also getting all of the uh, bad with the good. Well, and I think, Ken, one reason you particularly don't like it is when he's looking at the camera and saying, fix your hearts or die, uh, he's telling you to get with the program and, and just accept that this is what Twin Peaks is now. Yeah, it does, it does feel like a personal <laughs> slight. You're right. Uh, you know, uh, every, everything is about me, clearly. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the way in which David Lynch talks to me is really unacceptable, I have right. to say. I, I agree. I agree. I think he should show you a little bit more respect. Uh, I, I yeah. do one other uh, more serious point here uh, about this scene. It's interesting when Gordon comes in and sits down and he's waiting for Denise to enter. He looks and, and sees that there are red roses in her office. And she then comes in and questions Gordon's handling of the case. And, and it's just interesting to me we have these red roses because uh, we've already established at the beginning of episode three in the uh, comment from Briggs's disembodied head speaking to Cooper uh, that this is a blue rose case. And then at the end of this episode, we have Gordon speaking to Albert in a scene that is tinged with blue and affirming that it is not just a blue rose case, it is the bluest. It's just interesting to me that we have that dichotomy of the FBI chief of staff saying, I'm not sure you're handling this case correctly, Gordon, at a moment when there are red roses. Is she questioning whether this is a blue rose case at all? And if so, does that raise questions about whether Philip Jeffries is really involved? Yeah, you know, I didn't pick up like Ken did on this notion of Tamara talking to her boss and her coworkers as, as a sex kitten in that briefing. Uh, but I do think that the way that, that, you know, the Albert comment at the end of the episode and, and the, the camera work is really gross um, and, and upsetting, especially for the character of Albert. We can get to that in a minute. I didn't find anything about this scene itself like too upsetting. Uh, it does seem like David Lynch is kind of trying to take a, a victory lap for being so ahead of the curve on transgender issues with his, you know, fix your hearts or die comment. Uh, so I don't think that was actually directed at you, Ken. No, I know. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, it does seem like he's trying to give himself a pat on the back, but then he handles it in this incredibly clunky way where it seems like Denise is flirting with him and she's talking about hormones and he makes that grossed out old man face about it, you know, where he says, I, I really, really don't want to hear about it kind of a look. And yeah, look, totally, totally. Whether or not he deserves to pat himself on the back, whether or not Twin Peaks gets credit for the way it handled Denise 
in the original series is far beyond uh, my ability to, to speak to. And, I, you know, we should have somebody on who can discuss those issues. Um, I did bring it up uh, just in uh, preparation for this season with a trans friend of mine who had said uh, that she thought that the uh, portrayals of many people in uh, the original series were problematic. And uh, and I had said, oh, well, you know, Denise Bryson, for example. And she said, oh, no, actually, I, I think that character was handled pretty well. So, Ooh, huh. um, you know, it, it would I, I suppose there is a, a variety of different opinions on how uh, her character was handled in the original series, and it would be good to get somebody who has a, a background in this or just, you know, a, uh, um, a right to speak on it uh, that, that uh, surpasses mine um, uh, to, to talk about how her character was handled. But uh, this particular scene does not uh, go any way towards in, ingratiating me to where Lynch is at, right? Yeah, and I, I, would, I would agree with what Ken says there because I'm actually a little bit surprised to hear that uh, that the portrayal in the original series was was viewed favorably, and I'd, I'd actually be interested to hear how uh, someone who can speak to that uh, from experience and a little bit more intelligently than any of us can uh, views it. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> well, whether or not David Lynch has matured in the past 25 years, it does appear that our friend Bobby Briggs has uh, turned over a new leaf, who's gone from a guy who shoots a sheriff's deputy in a drug deal in the middle of the woods to an actual sheriff deputy himself, uh, working under the new Sheriff Truman, uh, Harry S. Truman's brother, in a, the next scene after Denise's office, which is in the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. We get Lucy having sort of an extreme bout of PTSD because of the fact that Sheriff Truman's on a cell phone. Again, this is just really jarring and not funny. It's just disturbing. And then we find out that little Danny Craig at the high school has overdosed on Chinese designer drugs. Deputy Bobby has been surveilling trails in the woods. Like, like he's familiar with them. He's killed men on them, that sort of right. thing. Uh, so there are, no, there are no Chinese designer drugs coming down from the north. Uh, and then he says that he has to take a leak, a comment about his back teeth floating, which I believe uh, Cooper uh, made the same comment in the pilot of the show. Well, there's definitely a point where he arrives at the sheriff's station and, and he says, you know, here's our, our la I've laid out our day. Here's what we need to do. We need to talk to this guy. We need to go to visit this place. But Harry, I'll meet you back here in five minutes because I really have to urinate. You're right. That's in the pilot. But gosh, I, I swear that the bit about the back teeth floating was, was a callback, a, a more direct callback, but maybe not. It could be. I mean, he drank a lot of coffee. You think there, there's more than one time he has to go pee in the course of the 12 days or so he's in Twin Peaks. That, that's right. Um, regardless, maybe this is a sign that Bobby Briggs is going to be the new kind of detective character in the show. Probably not, but uh, it, it's an interesting callback that they decided to highlight the fact that he needed to urinate uh, when he first appears in the show and in, in the sheriff's department. Did Bobby actually kill a guy? Did young Bobby actually kill a cop? I, I sort of thought of that as like a, a dream sequence. That's in Fire Walk With Me. Yep, it's in Fire Walk With Me, and it, it, it I'm 95% sure that it was the deputy from uh, Deer Meadow. It's also one of those scenes that is is showing us something that was referred to in the original series because there is an actual point where there's a comment about uh, Bobby saying that he killed someone. Okay, yeah, I mean, I remember Laura being really high and saying, like, Bobby killed a guy or something, and I just thought, well, nobody believes her because she's really high, but then again, maybe it really didn't happen, but that's probably just my brain not wanting it to happen. I mean, Bobby's terrible, but that's really terrible. Well, that deputy was kind of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> but he probably did not deserve to die in the woods. But I guess we can say he's not a civilian. 
And so I think, you know, we talked about the, you know, there's a new character introduced of Deputy Chad, who starts making fun of the log lady, which is not tolerated by anybody. New Sheriff Truman kicks him out of the room. And then Bobby is reduced to tears when he sees Laura's picture. Ken, how did you feel when you got to hear Laura's theme in the show for the first time? Strongly moved, uh, like Bobby Briggs. What about you, Kyle? Yeah, I, I sort of took it the same way that it it was it was definitely a very moving, very poignant moment. Uh, but again, I would liken it to the scene in the previous episode with the uh, the reaction to the bunnies. Uh, it, it was funny. It was intended to be funny. Bobby's moment was moving. It was intended to be moving. But they were both so exaggerated and over the top that it if they pulled back a little bit. If Bobby had gotten a little choked up and it had worked to hold it together a little bit more, I think it would have been more powerful than him just breaking down completely and blubbering. Yeah, that's right. And we get a little bit of exposition here where we find out that uh, Cooper, or somebody who appeared to be Cooper, was the last person to see Colonel Briggs alive. Uh, Bobby's father was Colonel Briggs. Cooper had come to the Briggs house. Uh, and then he disappeared. Apparently, that's the last time anybody saw Cooper in Twin Peaks. Briggs, Colonel Briggs died in a fire at his listening station the next day. Uh, and now we've come to what may be the most controversial scene in the return of Twin Peaks. And that is the arrival of Michael Sarah as Andy, Andy and Lucy's son, Wally Brando, who is apparently a Dharma bum and dresses like Wal- Marlon Brando, talks like Marlon Brando, uh, and is, uh, you know, when I first watched the scene, I hated it. I hated everything about it. I wanted to never, ever see Michael Sarah's face in the show again. But I've kind of come around. I, I just, I don't know how to unpack it. It's, it's, it's over the top. It's ridiculous. And I think the thing about it that's most significant is that the whole time Wally is giving this sort of soliloquy uh, about his travels on the road and his heart always being in this place is that he's got this half smirk on his face and you just can't tell if he's full of shit or not. Oh, oh I can tell. He's, he's definitely <laughs> full of shit. <laughs> Uh, this is amazing to me because uh, this is really like a JR fix your hearts or, or die moment because Jerry, you watched this scene maybe a full week before I did just based on when we had time to watch the, the four episodes and you were sending all of these angry like texts and, uh, um, and emails and everything else about Michael Sarah and, uh, um, and this performance and, uh, and how much you hated it and hated him and hated that he was in it. And then I finally got around to it and I was like, what the fuck is Michael Sarah doing? And I had the same exact sort of emotional experience that you did. And yet in the intervening week, you had somehow come around, uh, which, which floors me more than anything. Yeah. And I, I, I will say this, I, I understand every reaction to it and, and I may have reacted differently to it, watching it at different times. But the thing that I like about it, uh, and I'm not saying I like it, but, but it, it does do a little bit of that original Twin Peaks underselling that we haven't seen in the previous Twin Peaks based scenes. You know, we have this little bit of uncertainty. We've got Andy and Lucy standing there just looking at him as proud parents the whole time. And we've got Robert Forster's reaction to it. And that, to me, is what redeems the scene to the extent that it is redeemed, is Robert Forster sitting there listening to it, not really knowing what he's supposed to do or say, and then finally turning away from it. And and that that gave some degree of credibility to it to me. Yeah, he's great, and we haven't talked about him yet. Uh, he's meant to be Harry Truman's brother. Is that right? Yes. 
And Harry oh, S. Truman, we know, is sick. Right. And so, so when Lucy says which one in, uh, in episode one, she means the, the, the ailing sheriff, Harry Truman, or his brother who's, who's acting as sheriff, right? Right. But um, Forster, I guess, was considered by Lynch to play the part originally um, and wasn't available, which is how we ended up getting uh, Harry Truman the, as, as we know him, uh, which, uh, which I think is very cool. The actor who played Harry Truman originally is now fully retired and, uh, and in Canada and doesn't want to um, uh, come back. Yeah, apparently that's the case. Um, but I, I think it's a cool connection, right, to the original legend of, uh, of the show. Yeah, no, it worked out. Uh, amazingly, as so much else has worked out for David Lynch and Mark Frost, that they were able to get the original person that David Lynch wanted to be Sheriff Truman to be Sheriff Truman in the new show. And he does a great job. He's 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 the perfect straight man uh, to all the weirdness and quirkiness that's going around him. And, you know, I, I, you know, echoing you, Kyle, you get that sort of playoff between the straight guy and the quirkiness that we saw more of in the first season of Twin Peaks with this scene with Michael Sarah. He's definitely the oddest sort of quirkiness, quirkiest thing we've seen that isn't just like upsetting, like Lucy's problem with cell phones. And so now we're, we're back to the sort of uh, crocodile Dundee part of the show. Dale is adjusting to life in suburban Las Vegas. Uh, we get the scene where he's on a bed confused and he's looking into a corner I think there's some a power outlet there, and he has kind of a vision of Mike, and and Mike sends him the message, "You see me," and tells him that he was cr- tricked, and holds up the small metal ball, the little ball that is what uh, Dougie turned into when he was sent to the Black Lodge. Mike comes up with a nice message that now one of you must die, and so I think like we've already established, it's pretty clear that Dougie was a decoy uh, that was created by Bad Coop. That was his purpose to go into the Black Lodge instead of him. But now there's some sort of imbalance in the world uh, that there are two Coopers out there, both of whom seem to be incomplete or damaged in some way. And we can talk about that. The Bad Coop who's in prison in a minute. Yeah. The uh, the thing about it to me is when he says one of them must die. I mean, there's obviously the the literal connotation that what we're setting up is uh, a justified style final showdown between the good Cooper and the evil Cooper where one of them has to kill the other. Or it can be more of your original series, Star Trek, The Enemy Within. Kirk has been split into the good Kirk and the bad Kirk, and we need to put him in the transporter to combine them back together. Uh, and it really goes back to what reading you put on the final episode of season two uh, as to which of the two it's going to be. I mean, I think the uh, romantic cowboy American filmmaking notion here is that we're going to get this, you know, high noon moment where the two Coopers are facing off and they're going to draw down on each other and one of them is going to shoot the other. I don't think that's what we're going to get. I think it's going to be more subtle than that. I think it's going to be about rejoining these two partial incomplete Coopers uh, to get back the whole man that was lost when he went into the Black Lodge originally. Yeah, Lynch seems like, if nothing else, he would be determined to foil our expectation that we're going to get a McLaughlin versus McLaughlin showdown, a la the two Fassbenders in that terrible new alien. Oh, did you just give that away? 
What the Fassbender fights Fassbender? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. That's okay. Sorry, I thought everybody was talking about that. (laughs) He gave away that Bruce Willis was dead. I mean, he gave away that Bruce Willis was dead at this point. I mean, what? You're not going to get mad when he tells you Rosebud was a sled, are you? (laughs) I'm sorry. I really, I really thought that was just out there in the culture. I thought everybody was talking about the Fassbender on Fassbender violence. Right. So uh, Dale is, you know, it's sort of this comedy of errors of Dale trying to figure out how to get dressed and how to urinate. Uh, There's a scene of him like really, really peeing and needing to pee, uh, which Kyle, you you noted that the My Life, My Tapes, the autobiography of Dale Cooper, there's a scene where he's like, I think he's in college or like in his 20s and decides to see how long he can go without urinating. Right. And I I can't remember how long it goes, but it's hilarious. Almost as funny as when he decides how long he can go without sleeping and starts calling himself two sticks. (laughs) Yes. It's a it's a great book. Uh, probably none of it's canon, but it's 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 very entertaining. Long out of print, so I uh, I hope. Oh yeah, anytime, it. anytime. So yeah, and Coop Dale looks in the mirror and touches his hand. You know, it's it's clearly a reference back to the end of season two, where a similar scene where Dale is looking in a mirror and sees Bob and cracks his head into it. And and finally, we get this amazing scene where. Dale comes down into the into the kitchen. He's got this uh, green blazer, and he's got a necktie wrapped around his head. And we finally get some sort of shuffling jazz fun music. It's Dave Brubeck's uh, Take Five. Sonny Jim, his uh, apparent son, he's kind of the audience here, and just thinks all of this is hilarious. Yeah, I mean, good for Sonny Jim, since uh, the audience surrogate uh, might as well be having more fun than me as the audience, uh, because this continues to to not work for me, uh, at least up until the point where we see the mug that says i am dougie's coffee which i which i enjoyed quite a bit uh, i did want to mention while we're in dougie land that uh the way that mclaughlin is playing this as this this version of cooper slash dougie is not just reminiscent of leo johnson but reminiscent of john from cincinnati for me uh while we're counting up milch references uh and uh, eric freeman i think who's a basketball writer tweeted uh cooper to everybody i don't know butchie instead uh which was so perfect for me like that's exactly what i thought of as i was watching this i i i I forgot to mention that my Starman, I forgot about this when I went back and, and read about the movie, because I, I think I last saw it when I was eight in the theaters. There's a scene where he uses his uh, telekinetic powers to win a bunch of money at a casino on a slot machine. So there's a there's a, wow. a double reference there. Is that movie named after the Bowie song? No, it really doesn't have anything to do with the, the Bowie song. I mean, That's too I, bad, because that would be another Twin Peaks connection. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, to me, and and I I understand the the exaggerated nature of this scene and why someone wouldn't like it. But but to me, it's it's interesting that after he gets the message from Mike, we start to see bits of Cooper starting to peek through. You know, his wife calls him Dreamweaver. You know, she talks about the fact that his black suit fit him perfectly, and she needs to get more of them. You know, he does. It's it's weird, but there's a smile and a thumbs up that like we get from Cooper. Um, you know, the maple syrup on the pancakes that his son pours right after his wife claps her hands, which, you know, at least puts me in mind of, you know, nothing beats the taste sensation when maple syrup collides with ham. And then obviously culminating in the coffee, which is the essence of of what you're looking for with breakfast with this character. So it's just this little bits and pieces of the Agent Cooper we know peeking through. And and for that reason, uh, it was a welcome scene to me. Ken, are we ready to return to the beverage corner? (laughs) 
Well, first of all, I had the same exact thought about maple syrup colliding with uh, with ham, which is great. And uh, sure, yes, let's let's go back to Ken's beverage corner. Uh, I I hold right now in my grubby little paws uh, an empty can of David Lynch signature cup organic house roast uh, with the quote from Lynch. I guess it's all in the beans, and I'm just full of beans. And this is the only brand of coffee that I drank for uh, several years uh, when I was in uh, law school and just thereafter. So a very caffeinated part of my life. And it has a, a grade on the back of A+. So um, David Lynch has graded his own coffee very, very high. And if you want to see Lynch speaking about something in interviews and not just being uh, evasive about his art or rapturous about the value of transcendental meditation, you should Google David Lynch and coffee philosophy because uh, about a half dozen reporters have gotten him to opine about coffee. He has apparently drank uh, 20 cups of coffee approximately for a day for many years. He stops at 5.30 p.m., uh, but it was 20 cups. Uh, he says now it's less, but the difference is he's drinking bigger cups. So he was drinking 20 small styrofoam cups of coffee per day, but now he's down to like 10 larger mugs or something. So uh, the man must be urinating even more often than young Dale Cooper. So, <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he has carefully hand-sourced the beans like uh, Rene Redzepi for, uh, for Noma, Mexico. He has, uh, he has traveled all over looking for the finest ingredients, um, and his most recent blend is from the uh, Sierra Madres uh, Mountains in Oaxaca. So what I very much want to do, perhaps for a future episode or a future recording of this podcast, is get a hold of uh, some of the new blend of David Lynch Signature Cup and uh, do like a cold brew of it and then mix it with mezcal so that I have a, a fully Oaxacan co cocktail to put me in the right frame of mind. This has been Ken's Beverage Corner. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just going to have ayahuasca, I think, for the next episode. That'll be my <laughs> beverage. So, okay, so at the conclusion of the scene in the kitchen, we're, we're back in South Dakota. There's a, a brief cut to the police department in Buckhorn, where Constance, the intrepid investigator, has discovered that the John Doe's fingerprints are military and blocked. Uh, what do you, do you think they could somehow be the preserved body of Briggs? I hope not. I mean, we have seen his disembodied head floating, so in theory he could have been decapitated, but I think that was more uh, figurative than literal. And the, the body did not appear to be burned. Right. Of course, that assumes that his body was burned in that fire, as opposed to being, you know, taken up into the air by a UFO. So we're back in uh, South Dakota where we're at the airport where Gordon, Tamara Preston, and Albert have arrived. You know, we... we they, and then there's a drive to the prison. Agent Preston's got – she's in the front seat with the window open because apparently she gets car sick. Um, you know, Tamara Preston figures pretty heavily in the secret history of Twin Peaks. She is the agent assigned by Gordon to kind of annotate and check out the facts of Archivist's collection of the occult history of city or region of Twin Peaks. And it's interesting to see her on the screen now. What do you guys think about her character as we've seen it so far? Ken, you mentioned that you were upset that you thought she was talking like a sex kitten uh, in Philadelphia. Yeah, I have yet to see anything from her that suggests that this is any kind of empowered or nuanced portrayal of a, of a female character. She seems to exist uh, at the whim of her male colleagues and uh, purely uh, as an object of their sexual desire. I understand she's an FBI agent, but you wouldn't know it from either the way they have the actress portraying her or from the way that she is talked about. It seems like the, what's really missing is the element of her life where Denise says, usually I have to grow brass balls 
wants to have this job. She doesn't seem to have any element uh, of that to her character or portrayal. It's, it's worrisome. Well, and what what's really troubling about it is after you've read The Secret History of Twin Peaks, which, of course, she's the sort of... Uh, incidental uh, ancillary character who's walking you through this because she's the one who's reviewing the dossier and is making all of these notations uh, for the benefit of Gordon Cole. And of course, she doesn't appear in the sense of you getting a photograph of her. You don't know what she looks like. You don't know particularly how old she is. Uh, And you know she's a new agent, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she's young. Uh, And you get a lot of references from her that are fairly well uh, informed, you know, they're pretty erudite. They're uh, they're pretty insightful. Uh, she makes references to to movies like Body Heat that uh, I, I would think someone her age would uh, be unlikely to be familiar with uh, to the degree that she seemed to be. So you know, you really get the impression from reading the book that you've got this this young agent, this new agent who's really on top of things, who's sort of this up and comer. Uh, and you're right, none of that is coming through in the actress's portrayal. And again, that's not to criticize the actress who's doing it, uh, but the portrayal of the character. I mean, you get that moment where Gordon uh, accusatorily says to her, you know, Agent Preston, you're wearing a wire. And she says, you told me to wear a wire. You know, I, I don't know what that line, those two lines are doing in there. I don't know what the point of that is. If it's to get across to it, to us that she was wearing a wire at Gordon's direction, there are many better ways of conveying that information, and this is a character we've never seen before, but we've gotten to know in reading the book, and frankly, they're doing a disservice to this character that we came to know as the person writing margin notes. Yeah, you know, Gordon does praise her as an agent and her intelligence and her ability, and he doesn't make the same kind of piggish remark that Albert disappointingly does uh, in this scene or later on uh, outside the prison. But yeah, we don't really get a lot from her portrayal one way or the other about who she is or why, you know, what kind of an agent she is. Uh, She's kind of a cipher, unfortunately. So they're driving to the prison where we get this interview of Bad Coop where, you know, it's very interesting because Bad Coop does not Something has happened to him. He's he's not the same guy that was at the diner uh, talking about how he doesn't need anything. He only wants that. He's speaking in almost this like low tone robotic speech. It sounds kind of like the speech of the pseudo Philip Jeffries on the electronic device that he was talking to earlier in the hotel room. And he almost just kind of repeats back the same answer about wanting to brief Gordon on what he's been doing. I thought this was really interesting, and I took it as Bad Cooper doing a bit or doing a character or a voice as though he'd created a script in his head of what uh, he would sound like if he were to get across the idea that he were still that he was still good Cooper and in need of help, so that he's luring Gordon Cole or the FBI in to some disastrous scenario by pretending to still be good agent Dale Cooper and this notion like, Gordon, I need to debrief with you privately and I need your help and I've been undercover and that it comes off as so very, very flat because he's not really that person, that he's he's doing a thing and it takes all every ounce of restraint that he has not to sound like his usual indulgent evil self. It's impressive to see McLaughlin doing yet another kind of monotone or flat affect, which I realize sounds like damnation by faint praise or whatever, but it actually is really cool to me that he's able to 
do like the Dougie uh, slash John from Cincinnati thing. He's able to do the bad Cooper, I don't need things, I want them uh, monotone, and then he's able to do this bit as well. It's it's three very deft kinds of acting, even if it's not my favorite way the series could have gone with this. I really, really appreciate what McLaughlin is doing. Yeah, I agree. He's he's doing a, a, a very good acting job playing a, a lot of different parts here. I, I guess I interpreted this a little bit differently. This is the first time we're hearing Evil Cooper speaking uh, after we see him wreck his car. Uh, and he's speaking with this slow, repetitive, disjointed style that doesn't really jive with the conversation he's having. Um, you know, he does some of the same stuff that we see the good Cooper do with the smile and the thumbs up. And he does that right after referring to being home. Uh, and what I'm wondering is, has he been victimized by this transfer of Dougie going into the Black Lodge as well? Are both the good and bad Coopers uh, either in flux, or have they been partially wiped uh, by by this Dougie Golem being delivered to the Lodge and subsequently destroyed? I mean, it seems like they're both in the world, and they're not meant to be, and they're both a little bit less uh, than what one of them alone would be, and we don't see that from the bad Cooper until after the good Cooper is back in the world. Right. And we go from here to a scene where Gordon has asked the warden to tell him all about Coop's private phone call. And then they go outside, meaning Gordon, Agent Preston, and Albert. And Preston says that Coop wasn't going to Philadelphia because he was headed west, even though that's what he just said in their interview. And then Tamara asks about who Agent Jeffries is, because Coop had mentioned that during the interview. And it, it seems pretty clear that, that Gordon does not want to talk about uh, Philip Jeffries to Tamara. Or Judy. We're not going to talk about Judy. No, definitely not going to talk about Judy. Um, and so they banish Tamara to the restaurant. Um, again, you know, she's not appearing as like a fully fledged and trusted member of the team, uh, despite what Gordon had told Denise about why he needed to bring Tamara. Uh, and then Albert makes, you know, probably the worst, the worst that pro- I would say this is the, the, the point that Albert essentially makes a, uh, makes a comment about how Tamara looks from behind. And, uh, it's the worst thing in all of the first four seasons, first four episodes of the show, uh, especially for the character of Albert, for me. That or Michael Sarah. Those, those, those are the two. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was very disappointing for me because Albert has been a character that I, I've always really, really loved as being, you know, gruff and kind of mean on the outside, but, you know, having this, you know, pure heart as a, a bagman for the forces of justice. Just really, really disappointing uh, for him to make that comment. But anyway, there's a point where Albert confesses to Gordon that apparently at some point Coop uh, or Jeffries asked Albert for information that Jeffries said he was going to pass on to Cooper uh, because he was in danger. Cooper was, but that Albert hadn't talked to Cooper uh, and Albert told Jeffries who their man in Columbia was. Uh, and a week later, that man in Columbia was killed. And in the course of this conversation, Cooper ha- or Gordon has turned down his hearing aid to the point where even the slightest noise will cause a screeching sound that he can barely handle. Gordon is not happy or, or with how Coop presented in the interview. You know, this is a Blue Rose situation and that Gordon doesn't understand the situation at all. And now we'll get to the part where we talk about Mal. 
All right. I apologize in advance for uh, for this digression, but I've already established myself as this podcast resident pursuer of bizarre, bizarre tangents concerning world leaders from the 1970s. And, uh, and this one does concern the dictator who annexed Tibet into the People's Republic of China. So I'm not going to feel too terribly guilty about this one. But in this scene, Gordon's comment to Albert, uh, although I'm sure Lynch didn't intend that it would, but it reminded me of the lament of the Chinese general Chen Yi, who complained, I don't understand what's going on about some of the uh, arbitrary decision-making of Chairman Mao. Uh, of course, Mao Zedong was a, a revolutionary ruler with absolute power. He felt free to implement wild, sweeping initiatives like the Cultural Revolution because, as he famously explained, he believed China was a, quote, clean sheet of paper, unquote, on which he could paint, quote, the newest and most beautiful pictures, unquote. And of course, that proved not to be true as, as centuries of Chinese culture and tradition couldn't simply be ignored or erased just because the guy in charge wanted it to be. And, and it's tempting at times to view Twin Peaks, the return as that same clean sheet of paper and, and to view David Lynch as this revolutionary artist with total control over his creation who can paint the newest, most beautiful pictures. But in fact, this series is is not a clean sheet of paper. It's a palimpsest. It's uh, on which the director's painting over the the aged yet unfaded image of his original. And we see that illustrated with Bobby's reaction at the sight of one of those two iconic images of Laura Palmer from the original series. Of course, you have the picture of her wrapped in plastic after she's killed, but you have that uh, the prom picture. And and we're moving forward. But what Bobby says is absolutely right. Uh, it brings back some memories. And, and this isn't merely, it isn't even mostly an exercise in nostalgia, but that past is always there. And those secrets, as they always have been, are just lurking beneath the surface. So when I hear David Lynch say he doesn't know what's going on, uh, I take that two ways. In, in one sense, it's a wink, of course, at the viewers and the critics who accuse him of just making it up as he goes. But in a deeper sense, though, I think it's absolutely true in the sense in which he walked out of that studio and put his head down on the, the warm car hood and the red room sequence came to him full blown, at least according to the way he explains it. Um, he's letting this story lead him where it goes. And it's, it's not just a place that's both wonderful and strange. It's a place that is at once wholly novel and yet still tightly tethered to a, a, a central history that illumines the mystery. And that, for me, is is what makes this beautiful, even though it isn't the series that I would have created if David Lynch had asked me what I wanted to see. I just want to point out that I'm very happy to be a part of this podcast. Uh, I just I really love that this is the place where this sort of content is available on the Internet. I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, I, I am. I am really happy that I know people that are smarter and more articulate than me to be on this podcast. So, right. So, this the last point here is there's this comment about how they need to get somebody to look at Cooper, and Albert says that he knows where she drinks. I think that there's a, a attempt to kind of tease that this is going to be somebody at the Roadhouse because now, of course, we shift back to the Roadhouse to another band plane at the end of this episode. But I don't think that that. It's going to be somebody at the Roadhouse, you know, Shelley or maybe Sarah Palmer, somebody from Twin Peaks. I, I can't imagine that it would be Shelley because Shelley didn't really interact very much with uh, with Cooper. And if anybody were keeping up with Shelley, I think it would be Gordon, not Albert. Uh, it, it could be Sarah Palmer because Sarah Palmer had a connection, at least to the Black Lodge, where she a appeared with Dr. Jacoby and told Colonel Briggs that she had a message for him, which was that she he was with Cooper in the Black Lodge. But I think that it's Diane, a character that we haven't seen. 
but is, you know, got to be the person that you would think would know Cooper better than anyone else as a person to have to listen to all of his tapes. You know, we don't know. We, I'm, I'm guessing that it's Laura Dern that's going to play Diane because David Lynch really adores Laura Dern so much. And she's a pivot. Diane, I think, is going to turn out to be a pivotal character. But that's where my money is. I don't know if we'll see it in episode five, but actually, I think we will. I, I love that idea. Uh, I mean, I initially reacted to that by taking it literally, but you're right. Shelley doesn't make much sense. Sarah Palmer uh, appears to be doing plenty of drinking at her home. And so why does she need to go to the roadhouse to uh, uh, to get drunk? The, the only other thing that I can think of that makes any sense is that Albert, we know, is a smart aleck. So I know where she drinks may be totally sarcastic instead of literally true. He may be referring to someone who's so straight-laced that they don't drink at all. Now, that could mean Diane, who uh, apparently is extremely professional, or else Cooper wouldn't rely on her to uh, to take care of his tapes. Um, the only other possibility I can think of is it, it may be Annie Blackburn. You know, former inhabitant of a convent, and uh, and and that honestly is just me wanting so badly for Annie Blackburn to be back in this that that I'm I'm losing my sense of reason, which as you know was already pretty impaired where Twin Peaks was concerned. Yeah, I, I mean, since there's no indication that Heather Graham is coming back, it seems that it's unlikely we're going to see Annie. But you know, it could happen. Okay, and so then we 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 cut back to the roadhouse. We have all Revoir Simone do their synth pot thing. What are you guys' thoughts? We're now done with the first four episodes of Twin Peaks. We are ready to watch episode five. We'll be talking about that in a week. Where what do you think we can take from these first four episodes and what do you see happening in, in episode five? Are we gonna go back to Buckhorn? Are we gonna explore the Bill Hastings plot, which has been completely absent from these two episodes, except for the one note about the uh, lack of uh, fingerprints that could be accessible for the body. I expect quite a bit more South Dakota, for sure. It's interesting looking back at just three and four in in tandem with each other. Uh, you know, I started this episode by saying that uh, there is some really, really nice stuff in the structure of episode three and just some really, really nice scenes in it, despite my uh, dismissal of it at the, at the beginning of that episode. Four is sort of the opposite. Four is really weirdly structured towards the back end with all the plot stuff, and it spends a really long time on the allegedly comedic scenes with, with John from Cincinnati Cooper slash Dougie and it's it's a mess I mean and it and it has all the uh, the misogyny points that we touched on and and the weird Denise scene I mean just rewatching these and, and talking about them I'm struck by how much more successful an hour episode three is uh, than episode four in terms of what to expect next you know it does seem like they're going to keep shepherding people back into the fold or the repertoire of characters very slowly and we're going to keep getting little check-ins with people in in twin peaks and maybe slowly bringing them back in our lives uh, i i really really would enjoy some audrey horn unless she's unless her life has become as depressing as uh, uh grace of briskies i suppose i really would like audrey back in my life in some capacity yeah, and, and I have no idea where it's going from here, and, and I know how harebrained my theories are, so I don't I don't want to come up with one on the fly. The thing that impressed me about three and four in particular is visually this whole thing's just gorgeous. I mean, even if you hate the changes in tone, even if you're not sold on the new characters, the new locations, the new storylines, even if you think Twin Peaks The Return is the Emperor's new show, you can't deny that the lighting, the cinematography, and the imagery are just beautiful to behold. I mean, you could have watched episodes three and four with the sound down and still had a great viewing experience. And you might not even have followed the plot markedly less well, and you would have missed all the things that offended you. So maybe it's worth rewatching with the sound down and, and seeing how that benefits you. 
I mean, I literally just did that as we were recording, though, of course, I had the captions on. So uh, the, the various offensive pieces of, uh, of dialogue and treatment of characters were still there. But um, yeah, it is, it is really visually striking, and three in particular. There's, there's no getting around how cool, even if you want to be as pessimistic as I've been about this stuff, there's no getting around how cool all the stuff beginning with the purple scenes at the beginning of episode three is. Uh, if, you, if you are into the very lynchy, pure heroine lynch, that stuff is spectacular. And I, I certainly... Yeah, I mean, I've... I have can't say for me it looks like Twin Peaks the return is like the Star Wars prequels but good. <laughs> uh, I I think Revenge of the Sith is okay and my 7-year-old son will tell you that Attack of the Clones is the greatest movie that has ever been made. Um but yeah no I mean those those movies failed because you had the singular vision of the auteur George Lucas you know completely unmediated without an editor to tell him that you know this isn't actually what makes for a good movie. Uh, here essentially what we've got is David Lynch doing that. Uh, what he's producing is beautiful, challenging. It's it's not like anything we've ever seen before and my own take on it is that it's a, a completely different show. Uh, it has so little connection to the original show in terms of its structure in terms of how it's put together uh, in terms of how it's shot uh, because it's it, it's basically thrown out all of the conventional aspects of that show that kind of held it together for a lot of the viewers who were not you know people who would watch a racer head uh, but it's like this new show was made for me and i've you know I, I i can't say enough good things about it other than you know the misogyny and then you know before we end this episode i just want to say to all of our listeners we would love to get feedback from you you know what you like what you don't like about these episodes probably the easiest way to do that is to find us on facebook it's just facebook.com slash wrapped in podcast send us a message post stuff on our wall and uh, let it let us know what you think uh we want to make a better podcast we've struggled with technical issues that we're continuing tr to try to work out to get this thing recorded with participants all over the country every week uh but i'm really thankful to have been uh, able to uh, help bring this into being and i can't thank uh, kyle for coming up with the name of the podcast which was critical given that there are like 40 other twin peaks podcasts out there and you know being my partner on this from the first episode and ken your contributions have been essential as is you know now ken's beverage corner um and we had a great time with jeff and hopefully he'll be back and we'll have other guests in the future but but please do comment rate us and review us on itunes which will boost our rankings so that more people can find out about the show and uh unless there are any further thoughts from anybody uh thanks a lot and have a good week and we'll talk to you about episode five very soon
Don't boo me, God, that booing, I can't stand it. <laughs> oh my God, it's hard to get in tune when they're booing. You know? Yeah, I can't get in tune at all when they're booing. I can't, I can't, uh, it, it, I can't uh, hear anything. I don't even want to get in tune. <laughs> when they yell in this weird, weird nasal tone from here. Uh, Jesus, you know, I don't understand why they, how can they buy the tickets up so fast? I mean, you know, let's get that light off. <laughs>